Tough Smarts podcast. I'm your host, Dominique Lamb. So wonderful listeners, today we have an incredible guest, Martin Newman, a globally renowned keynote speaker, columnist, author, expert and advisor on customer-centric transformation and customer experience, named one of the top 50 most powerful people in online retail. Martin is known globally as a champion of customer experience being at the heart of end-to-end customer-centric transformation in our industry. It is an absolute pleasure to speak to you, Martin, and you come so highly recommended, not only from your bio, but everybody that we have come across that knows you just says that you are one of the most incredible speakers um, and do incredible things for industry. So how is it that you fell into retail? Well, first of all, thank you very much. I I feel very humbled by that introduction. I couldn't have written it better myself. So uh, much appreciated, Dominic. Um, I actually started working in retail, believe it or not, 40 years ago, uh, I know you'll find that hard to believe because I only look about 28 years of age. Um, I started working essentially as a 16-year-old. I went straight out of school and went to work for my father. And my father had a chain of retail opticians in Glasgow. He had a small a small chain of sort of four or five opticians uh, practices. Uh, and I cut my teeth there. I started in the marketing role. I was doing customer service, customer experience. My, my dad was great at serving customers. You know, you'd go in to get your eyes tested and you'd come out and before you knew it, he'd sold you two pairs of glasses and a pair of sunglasses, you know. Um, he was very engaging. And, and I think that's probably, from even earlier than that, where I really got my taste for retail and where I got my taste for customer experience because I used to go along to my dad's practices on a Saturday, take me along as a six, seven-year-old. I'd come in, I'd watch him in action. Uh, and I just have a great, I'd have, I'd have a great afternoon. Um, and as I say, that's where I think I really got my taste for retail and customer experience way back as a, a very young child, really. And where did that kind of lead you? So, I mean, you're 16, you've been watching this, you know, as long as you have kind of been around, you know, you, it sounds like yep. you, you've been around merchants for a very long time. And, and I had a similar experience in that, you know, my, my mother owned a store, my grandparents who were immigrants to Australia also owned a fish and chip shop. And so I was constantly around people that, that sold items and, and lived and breathed retail. Why do you think the customer experience was the thing that kind of caught your eye and, and you really honed in on? Listen, it's a great question. <clears throat> um, and I don't know if I have a simple answer for it, to be honest. As I say, I just think it's it's probably something that I have an, an innate uh, empathy with, if you like. Um, and I think part of it's probably born out of the sort of person that I am. I'm quite a considerate human being. You know, I care about the world. I care about what's going on around me. I care about other people. And I guess that to some extent that kind of manifested itself when I had the opportunity to then get involved in businesses that were selling directly to consumers. And so for me, I've always thought about it as, you know, I want to be, I want people to be served the way I want to be served. You know, I want people to have the experience that I want to have and that I'm looking for. And I, and I do think some of that just comes from the sort of person that I am, I guess, and what makes me as a human being, you know, and I think you have to have a love for your fellow, your fellow human beings. I think you have to care about people in order to be really, really good and really empathetic at customer service and customer experience. Otherwise, you might go down the other way and make decisions that actually could be to the detriment of customers. And I think when you have that mindset and you put customers first and you put customers at the heart of all you do, you generally make better decisions that encourage customers to come back, right? It's not really rocket science, I don't think. 
It's it's interesting, you know, in a time that we live in, right? So in Australia, prior to COVID-19, you know, Australians spent about 9.5% online. It's now shifted to about 16.9%. And we know it's, you know, projecting to be around about 20% over the next couple of years, which is a big shift in, in the Australian market. You talk a lot about customer service. And I think for many of our listeners, that's always meant, you know, the person in store, it's been about touching and feeling things and, and just, I guess, you know, providing the answers to someone as they they need them. What does that look like in an online space? I mean, how do you create the best version of customer service that feels as welcoming as what it would in store? Uh, great question. I mean, I think the key is to not see online as fundamentally being anything different from the physical experience. And I'll give you an example of that. A number of years ago, I had the privilege of being on the advisory board of a brand called Wiggle. And Wiggle and Chain Reaction are the biggest online bike retailers in the world now. And when I got involved in that business, um, a friend of mine who was a very keen cyclist said, oh, I've got to show you this email string. And he sent me this email string that was going backwards and forwards with Wiggle. And he'd been, he'd been trying to buy some parts for his bike. He was going into a competition. They sent him the wrong parts. And <clears throat> he was getting really frustrated. And he said, look, I need, I need these parts by, you know, a week on Tuesday because that's when the competition is at the very latest. Can you just pick up the phone and call me at a convenient time to arrange to send the right parts to me because they'd sent out their own parts in the first place. And the email that came back said, Dear Mr. Hamilton, I'm really sorry, but at the moment, we don't phone customers. We only contact them via email <laughs> and live chat. <laughs> and that told me everything I needed to know about that business. It was a business that thought because it was an internet business, pure play internet business, that it could behave differently and it could use technology to replace human intervention. And I mentioned this to the CEO, Humphrey Cobalt, at the time, very smart guy, who had grown the business exponentially over a number of years. And I said, have you not looked at putting in a contact center? He said, are you mad? He said, do you know how many emails we get a day? We get thousands. He said, that would cost us a fortune. I said, ah, so you've looked at the cost, you haven't looked at the benefit. And at that point in time, Wiggle had an enormous lapsed customer base in the many hundreds of thousands. Now, I'm not suggesting that was all down to the way they managed service, but that was definitely a contributor. And I strongly suggested that putting in a contact center was not only an opportunity to serve customers effectively, it was actually going to drive sales. <laughs> so I'm a firm believer in, yes, use technology as much as you can, but I still think there's a place there for human intervention. I think one of the issues at the moment, if I said to you, Dominic, you know, how would you contact a business? If you'd had a problem, right, you know, and you needed to get in touch with them because they'd sent you the wrong product or, or something had broken, whatever it was, you know, whether we're talking about Australian retailers or we're talking about international retailers, it would be different on a brand by brand basis, wouldn't it? Because some businesses let you contact them via email. Some let you call them in the contact center. Some you have a chat bot. In my humble opinion, disaster. Chatbots are not great at delivering nuanced levels of customer service. Um, and in some, you have live chat. Sometimes you still fill out a form on the website. And it's very fragmented. It's not clear from one brand to another how you actually get in touch with people. So customer service in itself online is not nearly as effective as it could be because it's not standardized. So as a consumer, you don't even know where to go. And often, of course, when you do get through to somebody, 
whether that's on the end of a phone or you get some email communication back, you get the type of response I was talking about from Wiggle where the computer says, no, sorry, because we treat customer service as something where we just want to make people away. They're a nuisance, right? It's like, oh, no, they're contacting us with a problem. You know, let's make it go away as quickly as possible. And I think that customer-centric businesses do the opposite of that. And they recognize that every customer touch point is an opportunity. Do you think that customer-centric businesses that do that successfully hold their human capital in higher esteem than those that don't? Because, you know, obviously with that story, it started with, you know, do you know how much that would cost us, you know, to have a contact center um, as opposed to, you know, do you know what kind of benefit that that would create by simply having people that had ideas and, you know, can, you know, not simply just do, I guess, that stock standard thing that a chatbot would do. Do you think that is the key, you know, that value of human capital as opposed to seeing people as a cost for a business? Definitely. Um, Such a great point. It's my, you know, I I created this framework for customer centricity because, to be honest, I got really frustrated about everyone talking about being customer first, putting the customer at the heart of what we do. And I thought, actually, what does that really mean in totality? For me, the first building block in my framework is being a people-first business, i.e. looking after your own people first and foremost. Because if you don't do that, how can we possibly expect them to then look after you know customers? And I do, I think, because I think it's very much a cultural thing. Mm-hmm. Because I think if you look after your human capital, if you look after your employees, if you look after your colleagues, if you create an environment where they're they're empowered to thrive, they're trusted to make decisions for customers. They don't have to go up the chain of command where the customer has to wait a week to find out whether or not you're going to replace, you know, a broken laptop or a pair of shoes or whatever it happens to be. You know, so they're empowered to make decisions. That drives trust. Trust drives engagement, both with employees and customers. And they're encouraged to uh, learn and develop, right? There's very often, you know, businesses, I think, that put their people at the heart of what they do, encourage their own colleagues to take on further education, to come to an MBA in a day or whatever it happens to be, but to actually pay for that and encourage them to do it because they recognize that by upskilling them, they get better people back into the business they feel more engaged, they stay longer, you know, they drive staff retention. Uh, we pay them proper amount of money, which uh, I have to say, sadly, at the moment, if, if I look at the UK market, we definitely do not pay um, our colleagues the right amount of money. In some cases, we've ripped up their contracts and we've tried to re-employ them on, on poorer commercial terms. Why would somebody then go the extra mile, you know, if we're not looking after them, if we're not training and developing them, if we're not paying them the right money, if we're not showing them that there could be a succession plan in, the, in, in our business and that they could have a whole career working for us for the next 30 years, why do we expect them? Why would we expect them to jump out of bed every day and, and you know, be so excited to come to work and serve customers and engage with them, you know? It's really interesting to me because I always talk about, um, you know, if you are creating trust in, in a team environment, the concept of allowing your staff to show vulnerability, you know, is so essential. And, and I guess where you jeopardize their livelihoods, you know, when they are trying to feed their family and when they are trying to, you know, buy a home or, you know, whatever it is in terms of those kind of basic needs, if you look at, you know, Haslow's hierarchy, you really do kind of erode that base 
where you can't you can't ask them to go any further, but they're unlikely to even do their best at this point. I mean, you're not going to get 110%. You're definitely not going to get 100% because it's just a means to an end all. They're constantly looking for a, somewhere else to go, which unfortunately for the Australian market, particularly post-COVID, I mean, there's a huge skill shortage here at the moment. Retailers are absolutely desperate to invest in their staff, um, and they can't. They can't get e-commerce. They can't get floor. They can't get anything because there has just been such a shift and movement away from, you know, a, a world that is in very much regulated around awards and, and kind of minimum wage in Australia. I'm interested to know: Do you see a shift in terms of that value of human capital and, and that true? I guess, investment into being, you know, customer centric in small and large businesses. Is there a really big difference? Do you think that kind of one category gets it done better than the others? Because of course, one has a lot more resources, but sometimes they get it wrong. And and I know that you've worked with huge brands like Burberry and Ted Baker and, and Harrods. You know, what's the difference between working with those large brands that have unlimited resources and working for say, a smaller brand, like the one you just spoke about? Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, the, the one thing with the big luxury brands is that the luxury brands, by nature, I think, and by default in terms of what they do, have probably always been a bit better at the whole customer-centric piece because a lot of these brands, you know, the, the store managers uh, and, the, and the people that work in their stores you know, they've got little black books of all their all their best customers, you know. So when people come in, they've got a lot of, uh, there's a lot of insight in terms of, you know, who the customer is, what they like, what they don't like. And, and they're always trying very hard to, I think, be, you know, keep in touch. And, 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 you know, they would phone up a customer, for example, and tell them, you know, when the latest collection's coming in or give them, you know, first access and first sight of, you know, what that looks like, the latest, you know, accessory or, or whatever it happens to be. So I think they, they've tended to be more focused on that, which, you know, in turn has obviously helped to drive customer lifetime value. However, smaller businesses, you know, smaller independent retail businesses, I think have also, you know, by nature of what they do, have always been great, you know, because you go into a local independent retailer, more often than not, they know your name, they know who you are. They probably know your family. You know, they probably know quite a lot about you and your background. They probably know what you want. And very often when you come in, they might even have set something aside for you, knowing that that's what you like to buy, you know, at a particular time of year. Um, and it's also a bit more of a discovery when you go into a smaller business, you know, because often the nature of what they do is they don't always sell the best known brands. They often look to sell something that's a bit different. So, the experience can be equally as good, sometimes better, I think, in a smaller business. Um, but I think it doesn't matter whether, you know, whether you're a large or a small business. I mean, when I look across all the consumer sectors, whether I'm looking at car dealers, whether I'm looking at retailers, restaurants, entertainment, travel, they've all got opportunities to improve. They've all got opportunities to drive what I call return on involvement. The new ROI, you know, we all look at return on investment. But how about return on involvement? How about if I get, if I, if I do a better job of building a relationship with Dominique, what does that mean to cut to her customer lifetime value to our business? And we don't focus enough on that. And I'll, I'll give you another example. Most of us, most of us have cars and most of us, when I don't, I'm sure it's the same in Australia, but you know, these days we tend to take our cars out on a contract 
So we take out this kind of personal finance deal and we take the car out for three or four years. We say we're going to drive a certain number of miles every year and that's it. When do we hear from the car dealer? You know, even if you're lucky enough to have a high-end car performance car, you might get a magazine once a quarter or something. But you don't hear from the car dealer until a couple of months before you're ready to renew. And by that time, you've probably already made your mind up either to buy from another car dealer or maybe even to buy another brand entirely. And I say to car dealers, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've got a wife and two kids. I've got four cars in my family. Why have you never asked me the question that, you know, who else might we sell a car to in your ecosystem? What could we do to make it interesting for you to, for your wife and your kids to also buy a car from us? Why do you only bother about selling me a car? And then why did I not hear from you until five minutes before I'm ready to renew? You know, it's not good enough. And, and to be honest, if you look across pretty much every consumer sector, I think you see the same, same pattern. You talked earlier about cost and, you know, we focus very much, particularly in retail, we focus very much on the, co- the cost to serve. So when I ask a board, you know, what's keeping you up at night? I guarantee you one of the three or four points they'll make is, oh, cost to serve customers. It's a nightmare. You know, whether it's the mobile experience or it's, you know, curbside pickup or it's click and collect, omni-channel, you know, whatever it is, it's a nightmare. It's killing margins. And whenever I hear that, I know they're going to make all the wrong decisions because what they're going to do, if you've got a focus on cost, then you're going to look to remove costs. That invariably is actually going to have a negative detrimental impact on the customer's experience because you're going to take away resources. You're going to take people out of the store. You're going to maybe take people out of your contact center. You're maybe not going to bother having a contact center. You know, you're going to end up making all these decisions that ultimately, more often than not, makes it worse for the customer rather than taking this lifetime value view and saying, well, actually, there's a longer game here I can play. You know, and if I do it really well, there's actually a lot more to go after with our important customers. I think that's so fascinating because, you know, what you're talking about is real strategy. And it's interesting to me because I've recently been reading um, a whole raft of of businesses that have engaged in kind of raising capital or, you know, going through the private equity um, just experience. And the one primary rule is to never do things out of desperation. And I think that for any business that is absolutely watching those costs, and of course, you know, to be a good business person, you should understand a P&L, you know, should know what you're spending and what you can afford. But if you are so obsessed with the costs and sometimes you lose that perspective of the larger picture and, of course, miss the opportunities, what is your favorite brand that you've ever worked with where you've seen them kind of go from zero to just just getting it right and and seeing those returns when they were in a place that where they were so focused on the cost of something that they had completely dismissed it? Crikey. Um, that's a really good question. I don't know if I have one single answer. And the, re- the reason being is that there are very, very few businesses that do do all of this really well. There are very few businesses that are people first. They're people at the heart of all they do. There are very few businesses that are focused on not only the moral but the commercial opportunity of social of being socially responsible, of being diverse and inclusive, of leveraging technology to put customers first, to empower customers, um, of doing all the things that I talk about when it you know when it when it comes to my customer centric model. So. I would tend to look at brands like maybe a Patagonia 
um, or you know, businesses that are sustainably successful year after year after year, you tend to see. So these are not necessarily businesses I've worked directly with, but there are businesses that I use as case studies when I'm talking about this stuff, whether it's in my books or whether it's in my MBA in a day or whatever it is I'm doing. You know, Patagonia, which is a cause-led business. You know, my my focus when I talk to businesses about this is how about what would it take for you to turn a customer into a fan? Because when you do that, you move the needle, right? And you you change the dynamic because all of a sudden you have an emotional attachment. So what I was saying a minute ago about return on involvement. You when you engage at a certain level and you and, and people start to feel about you in a different way, you're not just a transactional business trying to sell me stuff. You actually care about me. You're delivering great service. You're doing all the things I'm looking for. It does change how people feel about a business. And I mean, there's a brand in the UK called EO.com. Appliances online. You've got the, you've got the same brand but a different business in Australia. And just to give you an example, they um, from the minute they bring people into the business, they're looking for they're looking to bring in colleagues who are humble but ambitious. Right? Why? Because culturally. If you're, if you have humility, you hold your hands up when you get it wrong. Mm-hmm. You're authentic. You, you know, you don't try and hide behind anything. You say, I'm really sorry. I didn't do a good enough job. I'm going to do something about that. But then you've got the ambition to always want to improve, to want to, to be, you know, want to improve for the business, to want to improve for customers and want to improve yourself and your skill set. And so that brings and drives the right behaviors in the business to right the way through to, to the last mile experience, the people who install the fridge freezers, the tumble dryers, the washing machines, the white goods, and the TVs. In most businesses, in that part of the business, you're incentivized not by customer satisfaction. You're incentivized by how many of these did you install in a day? That's not the case. They're only in, they're only incentivized by did 90% plus of our customers really love the experience from when you walked into their house and installed their fridge freezer or not? And that is what they're bonused against. So that drives the right behavior with them and that drives the right outcome, you know, for customers. So businesses that are focused on this stuff just generally, you know, do it extremely well. I've now forgotten what the question was. That's okay because it was a fantastic answer. But I guess you actually sparked something in my mind because we spend a lot of time talking about, um, you know, diversity, the importance of diversity thinking, um, and also the the importance of recognizing that consumer activism is absolutely real and that sustainability, you know, across the board, whether it's sustainable workforces or sustainable products or, you know, minimizing plastics and packaging and all those kinds of things is absolutely here to stay and is imperative to the success of a brand. How imperative are those things now to return on involvement and to, you know, being customer focused? Massive, you know, and, and in particular, when you look at the younger generation. So, you know, I, I have, you know, two daughters, one who's on the cusp of millennial and the other who is an absolute archetypal Gen Z. So, for example, when they're both home and one's home from uni and the other's home from work and we're having dinner together around the dinner, you know, the dining table, I get reverse mentored all the time. <laughs> I have to be very careful about what comes out of my mouth because if, I, if, it, if it comes out the wrong way or I say the wrong thing, you know, they put me right and, it, and it's great. And I, and I mean that genuinely. It can be a bit, bit uncomfortable sometimes, but they're both extremely passionate about what is the right thing to do, what is the right behavior when it comes to all things relating to the planet, to diverse communities, to inclusion. And I've learned a lot from that. And I think that 
any business, you know, Gen Zs and millennials are a massively important part of any retail business's customer base, unless you have, happen to be in a very unusual category selling to, you know, the over 60s. Everybody generally has a need to be relevant to younger consumers. And that's only going to become more important because they're going to take up more and more of the consumer spend that's accessible to retailers. So even if you were only looking at those communities, then you have to do, you, you absolutely have to do the right thing. But I think that a lot of it still comes back to, I think, a misunderstanding of what these things are actually about, you know, and I think that too many boards are still looking at diversity and inclusion and looking at social responsibility and treating them as a tick box exercise. You know, there are things that we have to do or we have to be seen to be doing, right? We know that there's a moral imperative. We know there's something that we, you know, we need to be, we need to show our shareholders and our customers that we're making some moves here. But I don't think too many businesses are treating it seriously enough yet. It's not only morally the right thing to do, it is 100% commercially the right thing to do. Because in reality, if, if you buy into the premise that, you know, there's a significant chunk of consumers that do care about this stuff and will vote with their purses and their wallets and their credit cards and their debit cards and their buy now, pay later, and they'll go and buy from someone else if you don't get this stuff right, you know, then you've got to do something about it. So. I think it's absolutely the right thing to do. I think it's a massively important part of demonstrating what you stand for as a business. And, and the other thing I would say to that is that, you know, consumers increasingly now are looking for brands that do have a purpose. You know, I talked about Patagonia. They're looking for brands that really they can, they can, they, they see shared values. And they've got values and a purpose that, that really means something and that they can connect with and empathize with. And it sort of tells them that they're very much representative of how they feel. And that's just as important as anything else. And I think businesses that are socially responsible, are diverse, are inclusive, put their people at the heart of what they do, you know, do have the right values, do have purpose, and they demonstrate it and, and they walk the talk. They don't just talk about it. It's not a tick box exercise. It's not something that has to go in the annual report. It, it's something that they live and breathe every single day. Absolutely. Now we have time for one last question, and this is something I ask everybody. What are you reading or watching or both at the moment? Oh, crikey. There's a great question. I'm focusing a lot at the moment on the metaverse, partly because I'm being asked to talk about it, <laughs> and I'm going to be talking about it when I come to Australia, but also because I kind of like to challenge myself to continue to push myself forward. And I think if I'm not on top of what's changing within retail and what's changing with consumers, then I can't really do myself justice or do the businesses justice that I'm trying to engage with and in, in advising them what's coming next. So the metaverse for me is really interesting because, it, it can, you know, like all things technology, we tend to overestimate the impact of technology in the short term. So we always think it's going to hit us quicker than it actually does, but then we underestimate its impact in the long term. In other words, it becomes much more and a much bigger thing and a much bigger part of our lives than we probably first anticipated. And I think the metaverse is that is is very similar in the context that, you know, are we all going to be living our lives in the metaverse in this 3D virtual world? Is there going to be an avatar of Martin and Dominique in the metaverse, you know, in the next couple of months? Probably not. Uh, if there is, I don't think we're going to be going into these environments on a daily basis. But in at some point in the future, there's no question we will be spending a lot of time in these virtual worlds. 
in my mind, what it is fundamentally is it's it's almost like Web 3.0. You know, we talked about Web 2.0 about 10 years ago, and I've been waiting for a long time for Web 3.0. It's it's 3D. It, it brings the internet basically into a more real world, real life type feeling and situation. It brings everything to life from a flat 2D experience to a 3D experience. And we will be able to do many things in this virtual world the way that we do in the physical world. So we're seeing, obviously, the rise of NFTs. We're seeing the rise of people buying digital products. Um, But they will also be able to buy physical versions of the digital products that they're buying in these virtual worlds. But they'll be engaging in a way that that you do in a physical environment, in a digital environment. So it's almost like the merging of the online and offline in a way that we've probably thought about for a long time that hasn't been accessible. So I think that's what's coming. But like I said, you know, at the outset, I think we overestimate the impact of technology in the short term and underestimate its impact in the long term. So for me, I'm trying to upskill myself, be on top of that so that I can advise people on how do you get after this stuff? What can you do in the early stages? And what might you want to be thinking about a little bit further down the line? What are you watching when you're not reading about the metaverse? Oh, I'm, I'm loving, I'm loving it. I mean, I watch Netflix. I'm big into my, uh, well, I love Game of Thrones. <clears throat> so I, I was an avid Game of Thrones fan and I watched it from start to finish pretty much religiously. Um, I've, interestingly, I've tried going back to it recently because my wife didn't watch it. Um, she's not so much into the old sci-fi. So she's maybe finding it a little bit harder. Uh, to engage with than, than I did. And I'm probably not enjoying it quite as much as I did first time round, which is probably the same with a lot of grammars. Um, I was watching the Tinder Swindler recently. Yes, yes, so was I. Isn't it fascinating? Yeah, Tinder Swindler. Uh, funny, funnily enough, when you were talking, uh, it actually tweaked to me to ask you a question about the Tinder Swindler. Um, <laughs> and I think, you know what it was, you were talking to me about the high-end retailers and how you know, the high-end retailers have a black book of people that come and purchase from them. And, of course, the woman, the woman that actually did well out of having, well, well, I mean, better than the others out of having interactions with the Tinder Swindler was the woman that worked in the high-end store that started selling his clothes. And yeah. I was going to say to you, um, you know, it is really fascinating I guess just that kind of network that people within retail stores create um, and how well it can actually get them out of trouble every so often, as we saw in the Tinderless <laughs> Windler. That's a great example of it, right? That's, That's it. Example. That's it. Well, yeah. thank you so much for your time. It's been wonderful speaking to you. And for our listeners, if you'd like to come and hear more from Martin Newman, please come to Retail Fest on the Gold Coast. It is by far the best retail education event in the country, and we can't wait to meet Martin in person. Thank you very much for having me on, Dominique. Thank you. Want to know more about the Australian retail industry? Visit nra.net.au for more insights just like these.